Uh, if you could grab a Bible, uh, turn to Matthew 12. If you don't have a Bible um, or you don't want to use your electronic device because of distraction and all the sorts of things, whatever, then there's one that looks like this in the seats in front of you. Uh, grab it, turn to Matthew 12, and we will mostly be there. Um, that's what we'll be doing. Uh, let's, let's pray together real quick. God, I pray that you'd guide us in your word as we read your word, as we make sense of, of what you've called us to, this family that you've called us into, and that you would teach us by your spirit the depths of what that means beyond um, our social brokenness of family, our past experiences, positive, negative. God, we pray that you would teach us what you mean when you say that we're in your family, that we're brothers and sisters. Teach us what that means, Father. Show us how to connect with each other authentically. May your spirit speak. Give us ears to hear. We see your kingdom come and your will be done. Amen. Uh, before I can tell you about my birthday and get into just, just a lot of content, uh, get pumped. There's a lot here. Are you excited? Say I'm excited. That's, you don't have to be excited. You can just laugh at me. That's what Mike did. That's okay. Um, so, uh, uh, the, look at this picture. Here's a picture. Hey, welcome to the 90s. Who are these people? Anyone know? Yeah, yeah that's me, right? Uh, the, the really good-looking haircut one, that's me. Man, what happened there? Uh, if anyone went to church in the 90s or is familiar with J.C. Penney's, then they probably have a picture like this with their family. Anyone? You have pictures like this. I know you hide them, but you have them. Uh, that's my sister. She's got the, you know, elementary school 90s hair. She's three years older than me. She turns 40 this year. Whoa, which is always like a mark for me of like, gosh, in three years, something's happening in my life because <laughs> she's three years older than me. So this is family. And you all have a picture like this. You have a picture in your house. You had a picture or some understanding of family. You would call these people family. Say family. Family. Uh, let me tell you my birthday yesterday. I woke up to uh, uh, doing some uh, silence time in the morning that I've been doing. And then when I looked at my phone, I had a text from just this really long eternal texting thread with uh, Denver and Rachel and Dirty Mike. Doesn't matter why he's called Dirty Mike. And then uh, T Ray, TT, and just all these, they're people that we're really close to. In fact, they're so close to us, we would call them family. Um, Denver and Rachel are clearly family to Nikki and I. Uh, in fact, Proverbs 18.24 says, There is a friend who sticks closer than a... Oh, man. So you've experienced this. You've got friends that are like family, and it kind of blurs the line of what that means, right? As some of you are touching each other. That's adorable. Your friends that are like family. You get that. And so, like, in that, so these people text me, happy birthday. It's like, of course they did, because they're like family to me. It's so beautiful. And then uh, I got some other texts from Tim and Jen. They live in Bolivar. They visited here before. Jen was, was up here one time with us, and they sent me happy birthday. Of course they did, because they're really close. Uh, uh, my uh, um, grandma-in-law, that's not her. My mother-in-law, I call her grandma so I get confused. She uh, sent me a voicemail singing me happy birthday. And then uh, uh, my buddy Steve came over. We had some great coffee, uh, good talk early in the morning. Then Nikki and I went to do a CrossFit workout at our CrossFit gym with our CrossFit family. We call them CrossFit family. And everyone in the gym, all these people, it's not just Nikki and I who are, you know, like believers in Christ. Just everyone in the gym would say our CrossFit family. That's the phrase they use. This is our CrossFit family. We suffer together. We sweat. We get angry. We, we get really happy. This is our CrossFit family. And we had some friends there that are like family. They're newer friends to us, but they're really, we're really close and we spend time with them. And then uh, I went home and we started to make oxtail soup um, because a good friend of mine got me oxtail for my birthday. And 
And so we did that. Um, Sarah Moss made me a uh, carrot cake, which was literally like, I don't want to overemphasize. It's like one of the best carrot cakes I've had in life. And I didn't know how she knew. And another one of you have given me a carrot cake. How did you guys know I love carrot cake? Just happened. So uh, that was awesome. And again, like Sarah and Adam, we're very close to them. Are they friends or are they family? Oh, it's tricky, right? Because there's my family. Where's the weird picture? When my mom sent this to me this morning, she said, I'm not happy that you're going to use it. I just texted my family. I said, hey, I can't find this picture on Facebook. I know it exists. Can you send it to me? It's like 7 a.m. My mom sends the picture, and she says, I'm not happy with what you're going to do with this, but I sent it to you because I love you. Because she knew I was preaching this morning, so my mom knows. She says, oh, man, they're going to see this picture of my hair. Uh, that's my mom. Isn't she wonderful? Yeah, that's great. It's my dad, right? So... Um, are these people that we're talking to, the friends that text me, that, that I feel weird calling them friends because it belittles them, these CrossFit people that I suffer with every, several times a week, really sweating, spending lots of time with, like, are they family? Are Sarah and Adam, are they just really close friends or are they family? We have a hard time in our culture with these words. And part of the reason we have a hard time in our culture is because all of these words have been degraded and twisted and tense. And when I say the word family, all sorts of trauma and things ensue, right? Like you might import all these great ideas of family that you've personally experienced. You might import this great Hallmark movie or this ideal of family that you import that's, that's kind of in between. This, this is what a family is. Or you might just have trauma. People have hurt you, tensions. Maybe like family to you is just literally like all your blood family is terrible. And so the idea of family is literally just friends, right? And in fact, uh, several sitcoms that have come out in the last 20 years have this idea, right? They're all, they're all getting together as friends, but they live like family. And they always have the Thanksgiving episode, right? You think of your sitcom that you love. There's a Thanksgiving episode. And is there family there? Sometimes, but there's a lot of friends there too. Because there's a blurred line in our culture. Family is hard for a lot of us on all levels. Now, Jesus has something really weird that he does with family. We're going to look at it in Matthew 12. If you want to turn to Matthew 12, uh, we're going to be in verse, uh, verse 45. So while he was still speaking to the people, other places tell us these are his disciples, but there's other people around. So Jesus is speaking to these groups of people. Behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? It's like, did Jesus forget? Like, no, Jesus, your mother is Mary. It's a big deal in scripture, right? Also, your brother is James and, and maybe some others that they get confused in history, but definitely James. You have brothers. Like, it was a rhetorical question. He said, who are my mother and brothers? And everyone sitting there who very, very much so values family would be like, what do you mean, Jesus? Who is your mother and brothers? You know, you're the Messiah. How do you not know? Catch this. And stretching out his hands towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Verse 50. Here's where the money is. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother and my brother and sister. So this begs the question, we're going to deal with this right from the beginning. Okay, we're going to talk about all the family stuff. But right from the beginning, he says, whoever does the will of my father. What a, ugh. whoa, what does that mean? And there's several places where Jesus mentions the will of my father, the will of my father. He only does the will of his father. Not what he does, but what the father wills, right? Not my will, but your will be done. What is the will of the father? Well, thankfully, Jesus tells us pretty upfront. Although you get it when you read all the gospels, you understand the will of the father. But thankfully, in John 6, 40, Jesus says exactly the will of my father. Here it is, John 6, 40. For this is the will of my Father, 
follow. For whoever does the will of my father are my brothers and sisters. This is the will of my father, John 6, 40, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I'll raise him up on the last days. So what's the will of the father? That we look to Jesus, that we believe in Jesus, because that's the only way we'll be raised up. Meaning we will be brought away from the dead, the corruption, the brokenness that's around us. We look to Jesus, right? So the will of the father is to look to Jesus, follow him. And so Jesus looks at his disciples and says, all y'all who follow me, you're my brothers and sisters. The word for brother and sister in Greek is Adelphoi. Say Adelphoi. It occurs hundreds of times in the New Testament. In fact, fascinating enough, there's a word that we use for this gathering of Christians that we like to say. In fact, we call it this as a verb or noun on Sunday mornings. What do we call this thing we're at now? Say it loud. Church. We're at church. You want to come to church with me? This is church, guys. Right? And this word has been all over. Do you know the word in Greek? Those of you who are nerdy? Ecclesia. It's got two K's in Ecclesia, right? Ecclesia. Ecclesia occurs 120 times in the New Testament. Do you know how many times the word Adelphoi appears? The word for brothers and sisters? Over 300. It's the common moniker for Jesus and all his disciples, all the people right in the New Testament. It's the common moniker, the identifier for those who gather and believe in him. You are brother and it's a family word, brother and sister. Right? And there is great debate in uh, Old uh, New Testament scholars on if this word just means brothers or brothers and sisters. Because originally the word means uh, brethren, brothers, but the deepest meaning is of the same womb. And in the New Testament, if you read every occurrence of it, Paul, James, Peter, Jesus, they clearly mean everyone. And there is a Greek word. There's a female version of the word, uh, delphos, it doesn't matter. But delphoi is becoming like a mankind word. All y'all, all of you are brothers. This is your family, Adelphoi. That's the word Jesus used. This would have been such a radical thing for Jesus to say. Why? Because in their society, everyone was connected by their father's blood. We could talk about patrilinear societies, and I had so much uh, uh, anthropology in my notes that I had to remove so you're not sitting here till 1230. But just know their culture functioned very differently. Their culture understood, and we would see it as kind of oppressive because in the West we like to believe that we've really arrived and crawled above everyone else, which is a lie from the, uh, the devil. But we really like to think that we're above everyone in the world. But here's the idea. In their society, what we might think is oppressive is everything came back to the father's bloodline. It was all him. It's called a patriarchy linear society, meaning the patriarch, it's his lineage. And that's why when you read in the Bible, son of, son of, son of. And when you got married into a family, if you were a girl, right, you were still son of whoever. You did not become son of this. So in my family, Nikki became Nikki Newton, right? But in their culture, it still would have been, no, she would still be Nikki, son of whoever, son of whoever, because it's the father's bloodline that takes priority, which means in their society, the most valuable relationships that tended to span all levels of life would be a brother and sister relationship, which is interesting that that's the word Jesus goes to. That's the word the New Testament authors go to. Man, I wasn't going to tell you all about patrilinear society. Sorry if you got bored. Come back, come back. Here's the thing. It's very important. Jesus used a family term. And the reason it would have been so offensive is because he re-identifies all these people sitting there. It's not just blood relatives now. He's saying, no, no, no. If you believe in me, if you follow me, you're doing the father's will. You are brothers and sisters. This family relationship idea 
has always been on God's side. And I wish we could take time to unpack that most, but we understand that in general, God has always been about relationships, deep, intimate, eternal relationships. We know this from simple ideas of Trinity, Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man, human beings, in our image, after our likeness. Let us in our, in our. God exists in eternal perfect web of relationship, the Father, Son, and Spirit. We don't have time to unpack Trinity right now. More on that when we get into John. We'll spend some weeks on Trinity, probably. Uh, Maybe Nathan will. I'm just kidding. But uh, Father, Son, Spirit, they exist in a perfect relationship with each other, right? And so God is always in a relationship. In fact, one scholar says it this way, Dr. Gary Bashirs, God is a family who makes family. God exists as family. The fundamental objective reality of family, that is God. And when God acts, he's consistently making family. That is his character. God is a family who makes him. And this is a radical saying for Jesus then when he steps in and he says, whoever does the will of my father is my brother and sister. See, that upsets all kinds of societies. We could talk about individualistic or collectivistic, uh, strong or weak group societies, all these things we had to take on my notes. We could talk about all these different anthropological ways societies work with collectivism and and all these things and how, you know, the, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few and all these different things. In the West, we have all this individualism where it ultimately comes back to me and my happiness and what, uh, what I think, all those sort of things. But at the end of the day, What Jesus says upsets everyone. Because if you believe that everything just comes back to your blood family, that's the most important thing. He's saying, no, if you believe in me, you are adopted into that. You are now blood family. And then for those of us who in broken families, weakened families, he says, no, when you believe in Jesus, you are brothers and sisters. You're not individuals. You're of each other. You connect eternally to each other. God is a family who makes families. He gives them a new identity. So much so, when Jesus teaches things, it's always such corporate language. When he taught us to pray, he didn't say, pray my father. He said, pray our father. Our father, give us this day our daily bread. Lead us not to temptation. God never intended for you to be alone. God never intended for us to just champion our own life. My personal salvation, my personal walk with God, God's will for my life. That language is so strange in the Bible because the idea is that we are one of another. We are brothers and sisters. We are eternal family. And it should make us uncomfortable because evil's worked very hard in our culture in particular and societies all through history to make those relationships completely broken, completely severed. Of course you would have trauma in your family because then you wouldn't have a point of reference for God the Father. You wouldn't have a point of reference for what it means to be brothers and sisters. Of course we see brokenness at a family level. Evil wants so bad for us to just disintegrate this idea so we can't possibly sit in a room together and believe that just because you believe in Jesus, I don't even have to like you, but you're my brother and sister eternally in Christ because we're bound to one another because we look to Jesus. And that's an eternal relationship. God is calling us as a family. It's so radical because he gives them a new identity. When Jesus goes into the temple and he's flipping the temple, uh, he's flipping all the, uh, the tables of the money exchangers. What does he say? He says, says, get out of here. This is supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations. My house shall be. He's in Jerusalem. He's flipping tables. He says, this is wrong. He quotes Isaiah and he says, my house is to be a house of prayer for the nations. The word nations in Greek is etho or... Uh, yeah. 
Ethnos, and it's where we get the word ethnic in our society, ethnic cultures. Jesus is saying that all y'all are supposed to be in here praying and worshiping. Everybody is supposed to be able to come and pray, and you're ruining that. That's why Jesus is so upset. This was to be a house of prayer for all the nations. Jesus is implying in that moment, you guys have lost the plot line. You think it's all about you, but everyone's coming in. I'm redefining family. I'm bringing everyone in, and that's why they killed him. As you read the plot, One of the main things that triggered in Jerusalem, Jesus starting to be uh, trajecting towards being hung on the cross, is this inclusive language, this disruption of what they understood. No, no, there's outsiders, there's insiders. Jesus said, no, no, no. People look to me. I'm the bridge. I'm connecting everyone. Galatians 3, 26 through 28. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female. You are all one in Christ. One in Christ. One in Christ. Colossians 3, 9 through 11. Seeing that you have put off the old self, all these old things, these ties, these relationships, these things that define you, these negativities, uh, cultural or just sinful patterns, as you've put those off... With its old practices, you put on a new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. You're putting on a new self. What Jesus is saying about family is so radical because he's bringing in everybody. If someone believes in Jesus, they are eternally bound to you in a relationship that breaches everything. It's above your blood relatives. It's above your nationalistic ties. It's above your golf club. It's above your shooting buddies. It's above all of that. And that makes all of us uncomfortable. Do you feel it? Ugh. You're looking around some of these people and you're like, I don't want these people to, to live that much life with me. I don't even like some of these people. It's the tension. And it makes people very upset. In fact, they killed Jesus over this partially. It's a big deal. When Jesus is bringing these people together, he is unifying everyone with his family. We say this a lot here, what you're saved from, what you're saved for. You are saved from your sin, rebellion, death, and eternal separation from the Lord through your faith in Jesus. His life, death, and resurrection. That faith... The Father's will, having faith in Jesus, that's you being saved from this eternal separation, from, from all the sin and corruption, all the problems in your life, all these things that bring brokenness. You get saved from that. But it doesn't stop there. See, that's the lie that evil separates into us to create division, disunity. Oh, yeah, it's just you. Your personal salvation, you're saved from this. You were saved for something. Church, Christian, believer, mom, dad, parent, son, daughter, brother, sister. You're saved for something. You're saved for his kingdom come and his will be done. That kingdom is a kingdom of people just like you, a new humanity in Christ, the church, a family. You are called to live life together with them authentically with Christ, in Christ, for Christ. This is why we say we connect with each other authentically because you can't follow Jesus if you're not intimately woven into the church, his family. I'm going to say that again because you don't believe it and I don't believe it. Our culture doesn't want us to believe it. The lies of the devil doesn't want us to believe it. Our flesh fights against it. You cannot follow Jesus and believe in Jesus apart from being eternally woven and bound to his church, his family. They go together. You can't separate them. It's not just you and Jesus. It never was. You were called into an eternal family. I was called into an eternal family. And we struggle. 
blood is thicker than water. But not your daddy's blood. Not the blood of, of, of all these different things that, that have come to make you, you, nature, nurture. The blood that is thicker than water is the blood of Jesus Christ. That blood is what binds us together. And I'm sorry that doesn't get many amens right now because it's uncomfortable and it's difficult and, and it kind of pushes back on our individualism and it makes us think, oh, what are you saying? Like, oh man, we need to, we have to be together. Oh, you mean we need to sit together like hippies and sing Kumbaya? I know it makes us uncomfortable, but blood is not thicker than water. Only the blood of Jesus Christ binds us together. It's not your family. It's not your mama's faith. It's not your grandma's faith. It's not the nice things your dad said to you and you're going to bed. Those things are important. But the only thing that transforms your life. The only thing that holds us together as one body is Jesus' blood. That's why Jesus said, those who do the will of my father are my brothers, my sisters. Adelphoi, come together as one. Acts 20, 28. This is a verse to shepherds, to elders. It's on my board in my office because it's a constant reminder for me. The first half is kind of for me as a shepherd. The second half is for all y'all. It says, be careful. Pay close attention to yourself and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer. That's a big deal for me and, and, and Adam and, and all these shepherds in our shepherd church. We have to pay close attention to ourselves, to how we follow Jesus. Those of us who are close in our life, pay careful attention. But why? The Holy Spirit has made you an overseer to care for the church of God, the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Jesus is what binds us together. In fact, Jesus is the objective source of family. God is family. And so all your ideas that you import about family, whether it's brokenness because your daddy was mean to you, or, or it's, it's all this happiness because your mom always loved you and kissed you enough, or whatever it is, right? Maybe you, you were an orphan. Maybe you've been in foster care your whole life. All this broken and corruption in family, the only objective understanding we have as family is to look to the Lord. Because God is consistently bringing us together in Scripture over and over and over. This isn't how we approach the world. I mean, we struggle, right? Like we struggle to have these relationships. We struggle to come together and to, to bind together. We struggle to share life together. We get hurt by each other. I mean, come on, we don't have to show hands, but just think. How many people in this room have been hurt by some form of community? Your family, some community you were part of at school, church. How many people have been hurt by church? Man, that's powerful. That's why a lot of people aren't here now. That's why a lot of people are only going to be here today. So they've been hurt by church and they don't want to go back. We struggle with these things. And the result of this struggle in us, it creates, uh, creates a lack of community. We isolate, we keep to ourselves, we get guarded. And the result of all this distance and individualism, anxiety, depression, suicide, loneliness. Man, you want to look at some really depressing statistics? Just, just Google the rise of loneliness and the way that our culture has classified that, how people have studied that over the last hundred years, and the increase of what loneliness looks like. Anxiety, depression, suicide. I don't need, I started to, but I don't need to give you guys a whole list of why we're anxious and depressed and more suicidal than we've ever been, why all those things are on the increase. It's intuitively no. You all know. You look around, you see the news, you know people, People are anxious, more so than ever. People are lonely. People are depressed. People are suicidal. Mental illness is on a rise. I did read a, a survey this morning from 2020 that says loneliness is up 6% from 2018. This was even before the pandemic was in full swing, so still looking at what research looks like for post-pandemic stuff. But even before pandemic was in full swing, uh, it was up from 2008 to 2020, 6% went from 
46 to 52? Math is hard. But 52% of uh, Americans and 58% of Europeans are lonely. And you're like, ah, don't tell me I'm lonely. I'm pretty happy this morning. I've got someone sitting next to me. No one thinks it's okay to be lonely. Like, I mean, you ever met anyone that's like, you know what I want? I just really want to get lonely today. What are you guys doing tonight? You want to get lonely? Come on, dog. Let's go get lonely. Man, I had such a great birthday. I was lonely. I had such a, a good weekend because I was just lonely. No one talks. Now, being alone is different. Sometimes we want to be alone. We need to, we need to have some, some introverted time or whatever. You introverts who draw the strength from the forest and by being alone and just like whatever you do being introverted, I don't get it. But like you do that thing, that's fine. We're just talking about this perpetual loneliness. I, even when I'm around people, I feel distant and alone. The authors of The Relational Soul They have this to say about loneliness. What does loneliness tell us? Be it chronic or acute, slight or significant, loneliness is proof of our relational design. At the core of our being is the truth that we are designed for and defined by our relationships. We were born with a relentless longing to participate in the lives of others. Fundamentally, we are relational souls. We cannot not be in relationships or we cannot not be relational. You are meant for relationships. The most introverted person in here, maybe my wife, you are meant for relationships. And I know that because I know you. (laughs) Like no one is living on an island alone, super lonely and super happy. You might think that's what you want, but at your core, you were created to be in relationship. Neuroscientists tell us that from the time we are born in the womb, we start forming neurological connections to, uh, to, to grow with people. What's the word I'm looking for, David? To attachment. We start growing attachment as soon as we're in the womb. And there's all sorts of ways that we're attaching to, to our mother. And then as an early infant, we start gaining attachments immediately. Um, psychologists and counselors and neuroscientists have proved this. Like this is happening. These brain waves, these neural pathways, this is happening in infants. They are forming attachment and some different than others. Now, psychologists and counselors, they analyze that for attachment theory. Who's heard of attachment theory? It's okay. That's fine. Here's attachment theory. And this is a a brief overview, but uh, a guy named John Bowlby in 1969, 1970, he started doing the, uh, the strange placement test. And the idea was there were babies put with their parents. The parents would leave, the babies would respond and they'd take notes. Then the parents would come back and soothe and they would take notes and respond. And from that, now we have several, many decades of research on this that suggests that there are about four types of attachments. Here's what they look like. The first one is avoidant attachment. It's when the parent or caregiver was unable to to soothe well or they they were unavailable to the kid. The parent and caregiver are unavailable and they're distant, both emotionally and physically. And so those who have avoidant attachment issues as adults and they grow up, they can't trust others. They struggle. They, they, any form of intimacy, whether it's church, romantic, friendship, it brings some fear and they avoid it. They pull back. And what's interesting about this, the research suggests that this isn't even sometimes conscious. It's not like you're saying, ooh, people, I'm an avoidant person. That's not how it hits. It happens subconsciously. You just do this. And as I say this, you realize, oh my gosh, that's me. Don't talk about me right now, David, right? And it just hits us. And you don't have to just like be like, oh, that's me. I'm the avoidant type. You just know, hey, this sort of thing kind of relates to me. That's, that's actually, I do kind of avoid like, hey, hold on. I don't trust other people. Why would I trust other people, right? This is the avoidant attachment. The other one's anxious attachment. Number two, the parents were unreliable and failed to grow the ego capacity, which is a psychological term for what we would understand as like a sense of love and identity. Like it's more than just like everyone gets a trophy. It's like 
you being you and growing up in the bounds of what it means to be a human or as Christians in a right relationship with God, that is your identity. And you can be secure in the fact that there's a father who loves you and he's giving you parents who love you, right? And so when that isn't there, the ego capacity or the love and identity in Christ isn't grown, then you have an ancient attachment. You have people who say, I can't trust myself. I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. These people are anxious, insecure in relationships. It leads them to be smothering, uh, clingy, codependent. They find their self-worth and identity in their relationship, and it's never enough. Got to be better. Got to be more. Y'all will never think that I preach good enough. My wife will never love me enough. I'll never be a good enough father. I got to go. I got to be more. I got to try because I'm never enough. I can't trust myself. That's what comes out. This is the anxious attachment. That was a little too real. Does that sound like I relate to that? Golly. The next one is scattered or disorganized. That's the uh, togetherness. Like the parents were both, right? They were unavailable and unreliable, right? And this is the worst. They can't trust others and they can't trust themselves. They fluctuate between these problems, right? And then you have secure attachment, which is the parents were, uh, they were well-loved. The babies were, uh, the, the, the adolescents, the kids. Um, not perfect family. We're not talking about, oh, this family's really perfect. They're the ideal Harmark family, man. No, no, no. It was just the kids were well-loved, the parents showed up emotionally, physically, and it brought trust, right? All of these things come down to trust, a trust issue in relationships. I'm anxious, I'm, I'm avoidant, I'm scattered and disorganized, I struggle to trust myself, I trust others. It's a brokenness. There is no pill, no surgery. No meditation app or anything like that can heal this. You know what heals? What all counselor psychologists agree. You know what heals these broken relationship postures that we have? Healthy relationships. Where do we find healthy relationships? Those who do the will of my father are my brothers, my sisters. We find healthy relationships by looking to the objective source of healthy relationship. The father who's been trying to give us a healthy relationship from the beginning. The brothers and sisters in Christ that are coming together to have healthy relationships. James Pinbreaker, a social psychologist, did some research. He published in his book, Opening Up. Uh, I'm going to go off the cuff here because I was not going to talk about this, but I feel like I need to. Here's James Pinbreaker. He did a huge nationwide study, thousands of people. And he said, you know what? His surmise was there are people who never overcome trauma. And he wanted to know why. Why don't these people overcome trauma? And so his hypothesis was people who have social stigmas in their trauma. So if, it, if it's like uh, very faux pas in the social structure, then they will never overcome it. So things like uh, a rape or a suicide in the family or hate crimes. He surmised, this was his hypothesis, that those people struggle to overcome their trauma. Do you know what he discovered after doing tons and tons of research, tons of people interviewed, tons of uh, things studied, different people reviewing it? He discovered that the kind of trauma has almost no relevance on whether people overcome it. What that means is there are people who had little trauma who never overcame it. There are people who had mass trauma, never overcame it. It's just inconclusive. You know what was conclusive in his study that was surprising? All the people who had healthy relationships on the other side of their trauma, those were the people that got back to normal or even better than they were before. Better than the way I understand psychology language gets tricky because what does that even mean? But the main thing about James Finberger and the main thing about this whole thing with, with uh, avoidance and anxious and attachment theory, it turns out that psychologists, secular psychology is telling us, hey, we were created for a relationship. You have trauma. You've got junk in your life. 
You were created for a relationship. You got good things in your life you're trying to figure out? You're created for, for a relationship. In fact, I was sitting with a guy who's graduating with a counseling degree, uh, finishing up psychology, and I was sitting there a couple days ago, and I was running him through some of this. I was like, hey, dude, is this ridiculous, or is this like weird 70s science that maybe like I shouldn't talk about? Because I'm seeing it all over. I mean, everyone talks about attachment theory once you start reading into it. And he said, you know what's interesting? From a counseling perspective, uh, as he's kind of walked through this, he started kind of agreeing with me, hey, so much of counseling is guiding people together towards a conclusion. They might even have that conclusion on their own, but they need to do it alongside someone else. The crux of counseling is community. You might know what you need to do. You can't do it on your own. You need someone to guide you through it. Thank God for counselors. Thank God for psychologists who sit with us and walk through. Thank God for his family that he's given us. God knew this. He knew we needed a family. We know that these words of family create tension. I've already mentioned this. We talk about, I say the word father and some people get triggered. I say the word mother because we import whatever's gone on, the trauma, the tension. I understand, like those things happen. I sit with stories, I hear these terrible stories. We, we spend time with foster kids and the kids have gone through terrible things that we can't mention from the stage because your kids don't want me to talk about it. But it's terrible, it's dark. And so you have all this trauma. And of course we should. Because evil wants to break this down and us have no point to reference. So when Jesus says brother and sister and, and we're brethren and we're of one another, we just get so distant because like, ah, no, I've been around people. They're going to screw it up. They're going to hurt me or I'm going to mess them up. We put it back on ourselves. Makes us fearful and isolated. Listen, God is your father and he is reparenting you to have right relationship with others. He is the father who reparents you to have right relationships. You might not understand what a right father is because of the trauma and brokenness in your life. You might not understand what a good mother is or, or a good brother or sister. Thank God that he is our father, our father who art in heaven. Hallowed be his name. He's reparenting us to see these right relationships. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Scripture over and over in the New Testament as they struggle to be this one body together, they use this phrase. Um, I forgot to memorize it in Greek, so I'm not going to say it now. And you can just know that sometimes I don't, I don't remember things. I forget things. I screw up. I'm sorry, I don't remember the word. It starts with an A. It's on that paper right there. We can move on. Choose 59 times. We'll say Eloi. That sounds right, but it's not right. Uh, it's the phrase for one another. Say one another. Yeah, one another. The idea in Scripture is that you are of one another. It's used 59 times. It means that you are doing this together. Here's the thing about the New Testament authors. When they're writing, they understand a tight family woven society. They understand that what you do impacts other people, that your whole life is intimately connected to other people. And so in this idea that they're talking about this, when they say you're of one another, the authors of the New Testament assume two things about you. You say in this room right now, I, you're watching from home, I believe in Jesus. There are two assumptions that everyone in the New Testament has about you. You follow Jesus, great. They assume you're in community. Of course you would. Brothers and sisters used hundreds of times in the New Testament. Ecclesia, community, used 120 plus times. This idea of one another, of one another. You should do this as one another. You should do this as one another. Over 59 times, they assume you're in community. Not just attending church. Not just attending some service. They assume that you are in a real, life-sharing, vulnerable, intimate community where you know and you are known. That's the assumption. The second assumption is that it's messy. Everyone breathe. Take a deep breath. I didn't hear you. Take a deep breath. It's good. It's so good that we have that second assumption. Because it is. 
It's messy. I wasn't going to give this analogy, but I have to because I love Wade too much. Last week, I came in here to lead worship, and I got here early, and I worked so hard. It doesn't matter how hard, because I'm not a saint, but I worked hard to make sure there was no problem on the computer upstairs, because I knew that there was some tension on getting lyrics and slides on, and I just, like, I made a special document. It's like, I did weird things. Here's what Wade would say. You did weird things, and so it was weird. But I thought that, he's laughing, I did weird things, so I thought it'd be helpful. And so I was here, and I was getting my guitar, and Wade said something about it. He mentioned that, hey, I had this confusion, and I didn't realize, but I went, like, zero to 110 pretty quickly. And I started asking Wade, like, okay, well, I don't care whose fault this is. How do we resolve it for next time? What a jerk thing to say as we're preparing to practice to lead worship. I don't care whose fault it is, Wade. What? Ugh, I hate that I said that, right? I don't care whose fault it is, right? What a jerk thing. Anyway, ugh. I apologized. I went up there again. I apologized probably three or four times because I'm deeply emotional and Wade was over it immediately, but that's okay. And the thing is, Wade and I still work together today. He still got me a birthday present. He still told me he loved me. And we're still in community together. Why? Because we're eternally brothers and sisters in Christ. He's a brother, actually, but you get it. We're eternally brothers in Christ. We're going to annoy each other. It's going to be messy. We're going to make mistakes. They assume that you are in community and it is messy. Otherwise, it wouldn't be real life, vulnerable, sharing community. If it's not messy, it's not real. Place where you really know each other. Jesus' vision for church, his kingdom community, is family. Let's, let's talk out loud, right? Uh, don't put the list up yet. Yeah, leave that there. Way to go, Joe. Yo, Joe! Think about family. Close your eyes. Think about family. Now open your eyes. What are things a healthy family does? Just spit it at me. Together. Eat together. Was that already on there? That was number one on there. Shh. What else? What? Communicate? Pray. Pray. You guys have families? I know, I know all of them are broken in some way probably, but hey, that's the way it is. But what are the good things that happen? Vacation. They vacation together. Laugh. laugh. Oh man. Yeah, gosh, it's so good. I have like this image in my head of a certain way I can make my sister laugh. It brings me so much joy. She like starts doing that thing where she laughs and she like, you're not sure if she's breathing or like, like dying, but like she's smiling and she like starts shaking and then eventually she goes, ah! like, oh yeah, nailed it. That's family. What else? What else do healthy families do? Work. Did someone say work? Yeah, they work together. I like that. Celebrate. Celebrate. They have disagreements. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Here, what? Sing. Sing. Yeah, we do sing together. Loudly and obnoxiously, we sing together. That's a Newton thing. Uh, Here's a list from scripture. This list comes directly from things in the New Testament, right? I didn't like put a ton of verses there. So like it would overwhelm you. But if you want them, we can go along verses. But here's some things in the New Testament or all through scripture. They eat together. Think about festivals, celebrations, Passover, Lord's Supper. Come on. They celebrate together. They, They do stuff together. They're loving and affectionate. They hold each other accountable. There's examples of church discipline. And I could tell you the five or six things in the New Testament that church discipline falls under. Uh, but basically in general, like families, they hold each other accountable. And if someone's acting outside of the way they should, we love each other enough to say, hey, stop. This isn't how we treat each other. Hey, that's racist. Hey, you're an alcoholic. Hey, I love you enough to speak hard things to you because I love you because we're a family. They hold each other accountable. They share resources. They share responsibility. Man, share responsibility. Quick side note, this is for free. Maybe going to save an argument in your life. Did you know that every human eats every day just about? Raise your hand if you don't eat. Come on, like you eat a meal. You're going to eat a meal today. And most of the time in our, calm down, Riley. Most of the time in our society, when you eat, you put it on a 
a dish of some kind, which makes that dish no longer clean. It's dirty. And you know how that dish becomes clean again? Somebody washes it. And here's something so fascinating about how this works. Every home, every premarital thing, every roommate situation, every marriage, every single person, y'all do dishes. Everyone, every child, everyone does dishes. Yet it's such an argument for everyone. Why do we argue over this? If you recognize that we are one family, we're eternally bound to each other, it's a lot easier to share responsibility because you understand it's not just my dish that needs to be clean, but dinner tomorrow night's going to be terrible if the dishes aren't clean. So now all of a sudden we're all responsible for each other. It's not just my dishes, right? And so it should be a problem if it's only one person who always does the dishes in your home, but it also shouldn't be something we weaponize against each other because logically we all eat. We all do dishes. So come together and say, hey, we got to share this responsibility. Why? Not because you're the messiest roommate in the world. You slob, you buffoon. Because all of us have to eat. We all have to clean. We share responsibility together. We bear one another's burdens. We make decisions together. Uh, discernment. You don't know what you don't know. Right? Like how many people have been in a life group class or been with other people? Like, yeah, I'm really just struggling with this decision. I got to figure it out. Raise your hand if someone in this room has prayed for you and it's helped give you discernment and wisdom for how you should make a decision in life. Just raise your hand. Yeah, the vast majority of us. Why? Because we were meant to speak into each other's lives. This is what family does. We release each other into the future, calling, destiny, whatever word you want to call it. Say, hey, this is, this is what you're called into. We want to push you to do that. I thank God for the people in my life who told me, hey, maybe you should shepherd. Maybe you should quit avoiding being a hired holy man. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't have these deep, meaningful relationships that we have. I wouldn't be following the calling in my life to shepherd others. And they faithfully serve each other into death. This is the church family in Christ. And it's messy. Because those things are messy. Because we've got to do the dishes. Right? Somebody's going to do the dishes. It can't always be Lee Idol and Sharon Crawford. Someone's got to do the dishes. We all got to come together and do it. They're always in the dish room. Sorry, guys, calling you out. But they're just always doing the dishes. Like, hey, stop. Other people can do the dishes. Here's a quote from Paul Tripp that I love. Church life is not designed to be comfortable. What is the church? It's a chosen gathering of unfinished people still grappling with the selfishness of sin and the seduction of temptation, living in a fallen world where there is deception and dysfunction all around. Deep breath. That's us, right? Oof. There is nothing comfortable or easy in that plan. The church is intended to be messy and chaotic because the mess is intended to yank us out of our self-sufficiency and self-obsession to become people who really do love God and our neighbors. God puts broken people next to broken people, including leaders, not so they would be comfortable with one another, but so that they would function as agents of transformation in the lives of one another. The church is not an event or a building it's a family. It's a messy family. Looking to Jesus. We connect with each other authentically by looking to Jesus. All healthy families have a balance of loving acceptance and loving accountability. If you just have loving acceptance, then you have a whole bunch of people who don't really love each other because they never speak truth to each other. You're just tolerating and pretending. It's okay to drink till you die. It's okay to never eat. It's okay to get a divorce. It's okay to, to punch things with your fist when you're mad. No big deal because I love you, man. That's not love. That's ignorance. In fact, I would argue that's, that's almost the opposite of love. How much do you have to hate someone to let them continue to suffer amongst themselves? You love someone, you speak truth to them. So every healthy family has a balance of loving acceptance and loving accountability. This is the church. Here's how, here's how we apply this, right? As we, as we come to a close. 
We are one in Christ, unified by his spirit through our faith in him. That's the will of the Father, that we would look to Jesus and be saved and transformed by him. It's not just you and Jesus. And it's important for me to emphasize that it's not just you and Jesus because there are so many cultural barriers. There's so many emotional barriers to believe that you need other people and they need you. Because some of you think you're the worst person in the room. And some of you think you're the best person in the room. And all of that's a lie. Because we all need Jesus and we need each other because we're all looking to Jesus. You can't possibly follow Jesus without other people because how would you know? Here's the question that's been daunting me all week that uh, I told several people as I was winnowing down all these notes and trying to figure out what we were going to talk about and how we were going to stay on time. Here's the question I want to present to you. It makes me uncomfortable. What in your life does the church, the eternal family of Jesus that he's called you into, what does that eternal family in Jesus not have a say in? And why? What in your life would you say like, I know the church doesn't need to speak into that. My church doesn't need to tell me who my kids date. My church doesn't need to tell me what kind of shows I should watch. My church doesn't need to tell me what I should do with my money. My church doesn't need to tell me how should I approach this divorce. My church doesn't need to tell me how I should approach my next decisions when I'm graduating college. My church doesn't need to tell me who I should date in high school. My church shouldn't tell me what I should do with my college career. No, 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 no. That's not on the church. Why? Why would it not be? All these examples I just mentioned aren't eternal. You know what is eternal? King Jesus. His body. His family. And it is so stupid uncomfortable to have this conversation because I watch you squirm and I squirm about it because it's like, man, I don't want anyone to tell me I'm like, because I'm David Newton. I'm an American. I got freedom, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. David Newton's happiness. Don't you ever tell me how to live my life. That's the world we live in. That's the lie that is just turkey basted into our skull. What an interesting image, (laughs) right? That's the noise it would make. And it's just so in us. It's like, don't tell me how to live my life. And I know that because I watch it happen. I counsel people who don't really want someone to talk to them about how to follow Jesus or or how to have advice. I watch people who are like, I'm going to show up here, but don't you tell me how to live my life. I'm just here to do me, right? That's not what God's called us to. Jesus says, if you do the will of my father, if you're looking to me and you're trusting me, if you believe in Jesus, you're brothers and sisters. Therefore, you have to speak into each other's life. What in your life are you unwilling to let people speak into? This isn't a list of the church saying, this is the restrictions that you have to live under. Let me tell you, this is your plan for marriage. This is your plan for your life. This is your future. That's not the point. It looks more like someone saying, hey, I'm, I'm trying to figure out between two jobs. And I'm really stressed because I don't want to make the wrong decision. And I also don't want to be selfish because I know sometimes I can be selfish. So I need some people to pray about it. Because I know even when I make a decision, I'm going to feel like I screwed it up. And so I need some help. I need people in my life to surround me, whatever the outcome. It looks like someone saying, hey, uh, I'm thinking about leaving my spouse. And I can't stand this marriage anymore. And I know it's not right, but I'm so broken over it. I need help. I need people to surround me. And the response isn't, here's the list. The response is, let's look to Jesus together. Because Jesus is family. Jesus is truth. Jesus is life. He's the way. In fact, no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. And so we look to Jesus together. This is what it means to connect each other authentically. How would you know that your life is better and that you're trajecting in the right decisions? How would you know? You don't know. You need the church. You need the body of Christ. So who talks to you? about how your walk with Jesus is going. We say this all the time, like, you know, hey, text someone this week and say, hey, how's your walk with Jesus going? But I'm not just talking about your quiet time. We're talking about, like, 
How are you approaching Jesus in your job, your marriage, your singleness, your high school soccer game, your dating relationships, your breakup, the emotional trauma of your childhood, the loss of a loved one, the insecurities of your daily life, the fears that you carry and all the things that you love, enjoy, and celebrate? Who's talking to you about those things that you look to Jesus in? That's family. That's community. That's thy kingdom come, thy will be done. How are we looking to Jesus in these things? How do we live this way? I mean, like, how do we wrap this whole thing up? This is as big. This is hard. And in some levels, we all get it intuitively. Like, oh, yeah, I get that. Family, church, relationship. Yeah, dog. Like, and the other hand, we're like, don't you tell me how to live my life. And so we're caught in that tension. I believe only Jesus can change our hearts. And I believe that in our culture, we have been fundamentally taught a lie for hundreds of years to be individualistic and to separate from this understanding of family. And I believe that so many of us have experienced such family trauma that we don't even know what it means to have a healthy relationship. And psychology tells us this, sociology tells us this, but it doesn't matter what they say or what I say. Only Jesus can change our hearts. And so what shot do we have of living in this family? Because y'all are going to annoy each other. Y'all are sick of how long I've been talking. You're not going to come back next week. Whatever it is. Like we're going to find reasons. Evil's going to find reasons to create disunity. Only Jesus Christ. That's why it's his blood. That's why it's on him. He's the only one that can save. He's the only way, the truth, and life. That's why he says, I have all authority. I'm with you always. Discipleship, it's all looking to Jesus. Going, doing missions, it's all looking to Jesus. Worshiping, it's all looking to Jesus. Connecting with each other, it's all looking to Jesus. Because we all have too much brokenness to do it on our own. We have to look to Jesus. So, what is the most simple way as shepherds when we meet on Friday? It's like, man, how do I make this applicable? Like, this is just heavy and hard. And people are like, ah, David's a delicate flower who's super emotional and hippie. So, of course, he's going to tell us all to come together. Like, it's like, hey, David, how do I make this applicable? I love what Adam said. Adam just simply said, tell him to show up. Tell him to show up. Not to call you out. Be here. I can't express how many people have told me I'm broken. I need this. I'm struggling. And then they're here for a couple weeks and things are going so good. We even baptize them. We see God change their life. And then they're gone. And we watch them spiral out of control be here. Not because we're a cult and we're trying to control your life, but because I need you and you need me. Because looking to Jesus and following him is counterintuitive. It's countercultural. It doesn't make sense. And we don't like to apply it to all parts of our life. We need each other. Simply put, people who are here and stay grow in Christ. People who are not here and leave, they struggle. Obviously, they can go to other churches. That's not what I mean. People who consistently are not here being the body of Christ, the family, they struggle. They don't grow. Several of us have church hurt. We have family hurt. I want to tell you a quick story. Two things. There's a close friend of mine who's, uh, who's, who's been a member of our church, and this person really hates being here. <laughs> uh, you could pin it on trauma. You could pin it on uh, uh, addiction, things of the past, or all these broken things have happened. But in general, they really struggle to be here. And they'll say, like, I leave so, so angry and so frustrated. And it's not like I come in here on Sundays or Wednesdays or whatever, and I just leave, like, on cloud nine. Like, I'd, I struggle. What he told me is that God hasn't called me right now to a feeling. He's called me to obedience. 
And when I read scripture and when I listen to the Lord, because all this person wants to do is just sit alone with the Lord. He said, when I sit alone with the Lord, he tells me that I don't trust people because I don't trust him. And I grow in trusting him by trusting other people. And so I come here, not because I feel, and it makes me super happy and cheerful, but because God told me to. And I can't grow to the father unless I grow with his people, with his family community. And I'm watching every week, God change this person's life. As hard as it is for them, I'm watching it happen. And all these stories we have in our church of these beautiful moments where someone comes and they're changed and they're so happy and it's all lifted up. I know other people who come and they struggle and they're insecure. Church, memorial members, hear me. There are people right now, if they were honest, they'd say, I'm not here because people aren't talking to me. People aren't reaching out to me. We are a very friendly and welcoming church and we push that hard. We teach this stuff all the time. We have great community. But there's over 100 plus of us, 130 of us that gather. People are going to fall through the cracks. So it's on you. It's not on me to connect everybody. It's on me to preach the word of God and pray. That's what it tells me. That's what I'm doing. And then I shepherd and we gather. But it's on all of us to reach out. There's empty seats in here and you can immediately think of someone that's not here. There's someone that was here five years ago that you shared life with and you love. They're in your life group, but they're gone now. Who's reaching out to them? Because when I talk to them, they say, I haven't heard from anyone but you. And that's not me putting it all on you because those people are few and far between. There's tons of people that feel connected here. But there are tons of people who don't go to a life group, who don't share weekly life together, or who are not here because we're not reaching out to them. So I pray this morning, as God lays in your mind someone, that you take it on yourself to reach out to them. Say, hey, I'm thinking about you. I love you. How you doing? Sorry we haven't talked. Hey, can we get coffee this week? Can I? Whatever it is. Because we're a family. And we're not a family because I'm really awesome and I teach long and loud and passionately or, or because Adam's really cool or because Carrie's really awesome and does great work with children's ministry. That's not why we're a family. We're a family because of Jesus Christ's blood and we're eternally bound to each other to look to Jesus. And so I don't have all these super listed applications for you, but I will say this, show up. Show up and reach out to each other. Connect with each other authentically. We have no shot about being a family if we keep believing it's about us. If you could stand as we look to move to our response. I don't know if during the response right now, this is your posture where you just need to open your hands and say, I'm going to trust in Jesus and figure out how to grow in this family. But I bet some of your response needs to be moving. You need to move across the room right now and grab somebody that you love and let them know you love them and you're praying for them. You let them know that you're thankful they're here. You let them know that you're thankful that they're part of the eternal body of Christ, that you get to look to Jesus together. You remind them of that time when they said that thing that was really moving to you and you're thankful that you have this eternal body. That's how you move right now. If you're new here and that's super uncomfortable and weird and you're like, man, this, I'm never coming back. You guys are all too weird and feel it. That's fine. Like I get it. Please just, just open your hands and say, Jesus, you said that if I believe in you, that these people are my brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't know what that means. Why did you bring me here this morning? That's it. That's your response. That's fine. Maybe you need to move. Maybe you need to text someone. Maybe you just need to decide, hey, I'm going to show up. I keep not being here and I need to show up. I don't know what God needs to do in you. I do know that Jesus said, whoever does the will of my father, whoever believes in Jesus and follows him, that they are brothers and sisters. They're family. God is calling you to that family. If you believe in him, you're in it. How are you going to respond? Let's pray. God, I pray for, uh, for this moment as we respond, as we sing, as we, uh, whatever it is, that you would give us boldness in your spirit. So hard, God, to know. What's, there's so many things to say and teach. There's so many things that, that you speak and study. We trust you in this moment that, that you're guiding you're, through your word. You tell us that we're unified and all is Christ, that all is Jesus, that he is everything.
I pray your spirit would move right now as we respond, whether we, we, we are taking time to pray, encourage each other, whether we, uh, if there are people here that don't know you, that need to give their life to you, that says, I don't know Jesus. I, I, don't, I don't know this family. I'm, I'm so distant from my trauma, from my junk. I need Jesus. Whoever, whatever is needed right now, God, I pray that you would move. In the power of your spirit, that we would respond, that we would see stories of redemption. We would see your kingdom come and your will be done. That we would live as this new humanity, this eternal family that you've called us into. Teach us how to respond right now, Jesus. We struggle. I struggle. Show us how to respond in these moments as we look to you. Thank you for your love for us. If you need to pray, be down here.